All right, let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 38. We've come to the most quoted passage, the most referenced passage in the book of Ezekiel. Chapters 38 and 39 tell of a coming northern confederacy of nations that are around the Black and Caspian Seas who with Persia and North Africa will invade the promised land after Israel's restoration to it in the last days. Reading through the passage, you immediately ask yourself two questions. Before you really even dig into it, you ask, who are these people and when does this invasion take place? Now, it should be no surprise that there's a great deal of controversy about the timing of the invasion. All the way from those, believe it or not, who say that it's already happened to those who believe that it happens just prior to the tribulation, to those who believe it happens sometime during the tribulation, to those who believe it happens at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, to those who believe it happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. And so people are all over the map. Uh, We are going to deal with that question of timing in a subsequent study because before you can get to the timing of it, you really need to see who these people are, where they really come from. And though there's a lot of... uh, scholarly digging that you can do in the end it's really not that hard I mean when you scour all the sources and I mean uh, you know guys you can really get deep into genealogies and all of this kind of stuff uh, there's pretty good agreement on who these people really are and so we're just going to scratch the surface Uh, I'm not a scholar I depend on those who are uh, but uh, this is all good solid stuff we want to see who these people really are Uh, so that there's no confusion. And so we start in verse 1. Let's just read the first six verses and pick out the names. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and lead you out. With all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Tagarma from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. There's a little bit more background here. These two chapters, 38 and 39, are a single prophecy. And we're going to see when we get there that chapter 39 is a restatement of what we learn in chapter 38. And so it's all one continuous message. They are the final prophecy in a series of six that Ezekiel spoke the night before a messenger arrived from the Holy Land, from the promised land, with the news For the exiles there in Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar had indeed overrun Jerusalem. The city had fallen finally in the third siege by the Babylonian army and the temple had been destroyed. And so Ezekiel's tongue had been loosed and he is prophesying. The people still don't really believe him that Jerusalem is going to fall. They haven't had this news yet. But he knows that it's true. It's the fulfillment of everything he's been saying. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you see he's turned his messages to the far future of Israel. And the idea is that the nation has fallen. The temple is destroyed. 
But God has a plan for his elect nation. Now, as we read through this prophecy, we obviously are going to get caught up in its details. Let's not forget that it was given to encourage a group of exiles that God had a future and a hope for them and for their nation. Prophecy is intended to encourage God's people. When you look at prophecy uh, in terms of the gift of prophecy in the New Testament, when discussing the proper exercise of that gift in the gatherings of the church, the Apostle Paul said, and I quote from 1 Corinthians 14, he said, He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. One author summarized this by saying, The purpose of prophecy is to build up by edification, to encourage through exhortation, and to console through comfort. If a Bible teacher is gifted to teach, we say that he will exercise the gift of prophecy in his messages in the sense that what he talks about will bring edification and encouragement and comfort to the people. Not that you're always predicting the future. Prophecy is a foretelling, but it's also just a foretelling of God's Word. And a lot of times you've been here, many of you, most of you, when we have our times of waiting on the Lord and prayer, lots of times the Lord just speaks to us through uh, the Word of God as different individuals will feel a burden on their heart to share a piece of Scripture, a passage of Scripture. And that is an exercise of the gift of prophecy. It's a word to encourage and to comfort and to exhort and to build up the body. And so, you know, I was thinking about this. Before we get into all the details of this, I wanted to kind of make a devotional application tonight. And so let me just make a general statement. And I, I don't know that you'll agree or disagree with this, but it's an observation I've made over the years. It seems like it's much more common for a person to, as we like to say, go negative when teaching the Bible, rather than to concentrate on building up and encouraging and consoling. It's easy to prey upon feelings that you don't quite measure up to God's standards. Uh, it's easy to make Christians feel bad. Uh, it really is. You already feel bad. All of you came in here tonight, all of us, knowing that we haven't done enough for God. We could give Him more, we could pray more, we could fast more, we could fast at all, as a matter of fact. I mean, some of us are thinking, fasting, what are you talking about? You know, and, and, stuff. and so it's the easiest thing in the world to make a Christian feel bad. Uh, and you know what? I, I, I know there's a place for exhortation, but it's an exhortation that is to build up. Our goal is to build up, to encourage and comfort by revealing Jesus Christ in each passage. Sure, you'll be challenged, you'll be exhorted, but it ought to be the challenge and exhortation to re- remain in love with Jesus, to go on being motivated by love rather than guilt or pressure or anything else of that nature. And so that's what we want to be about. Uh, and, and sometimes you have to really, uh, because of our, you know, the vestiges of our old nature, whether you want to call it the sin nature or the flesh or whatever, we just are drawn to want to, you know, kind of go negative and, and we have to really work at drawing Jesus out of a passage. And showing his love. And I think the other thing, we're afraid of being gracious sometimes. We're afraid of just showing the grace of God. I'll, I'll never forget one. I was a young Christian and uh, 
I was listening to Pastor Chuck teach, and he was talking about issues like legalism and grace and things like that. And I, I forget the exact flow of his thinking, but basically the thing that I remembered was that, you know, he, he made a statement that maybe one day I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm going to be late for work and I, you know, I, I live by this precept of no Bible, no breakfast, you know, and, and if I don't get into the Word of God, if I don't have my morning devotions, what kind of a Christian am I? But he says, maybe there's going to come a time when you just can't have your morning devotions. He's not recommending that, but it happens, right? Do you, ever, do you ever get up late? Anybody ever get up late? And, and you just are not, and it's like, dude, am I late for work and, you know, and all this and stuff. And he said, you know, he goes, I've had days like that, and those have been the most blessed days where God just has blessed me. I'm sharing with people. People are getting saved. The ministry is taking place, all that. And all the while you're thinking, how can this be when I didn't have my devotions this morning? When I didn't do what I was supposed to do, how is God able to bless me? And I think God just does things like that sometimes say, it, it's really not about you. Do you understand that? It's all about me. I love you. And it's about our love. And what you do flows from that love. And so, yeah, we need to do all of those things more. Amen? Amen. But we need to do them because Jesus Christ loves us. And that's why to the church at Ephesus, he says, man, you guys are doing so much. It's It's fantastic but you've left your first love and I'd rather you just get back to that and that we love one another and then these same works that you're doing will be powerful and they'll flow with the love of Jesus Christ. And so let's be positive uh, in a biblical sense. Let's look for Jesus and say the kinds of things that Jesus would say. And when you come away from something feeling just beat up, that's not the Lord. Convicted? Sure. Convinced of... Your need to change, challenge, those kinds of things? Absolutely. But it's not the Lord to beat you up. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Now, just one quick footnote. I want to give credit where credit is due. As we begin our study of the, uh, who these nations are, in my research, I rely heavily on a guy by the name of Thomas Ice. He's from, uh, well, not from, but he's part of something called the Pre-Trib Research Center. And uh, if you're interested in getting really deep into the history of this, some of you love history and really want to verify all this, they have a multi-part series uh, just on Ezekiel 38 and 39 where they go through the languages and the genealogies and the histories and what the ancient historians said to come to these conclusions. And uh, you can get to their website, pre-trib.org, or it's in my notes that I send out, and you can... uh, you can read this stuff. But a lot of my factual information comes from these guys. So, back into our passage now. Who is Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal? Well, here are the conclusions of a few godly men who uh, are noted for their scholarship. Mark Hitchcock, uh, by the way, any of Mark Hitchcock's books I would recommend uh, as good books on prophecy. We have a lot of them in the bookstore or we can get them. Uh, he's a prominent uh, prophecy scholar right now and his books are fantastic. He says the reason Gog is singled out 11 times by God in these two chapters is because Gog is the general over this coalition of nations in its great military campaign against Israel. Hal Lindsey, who's been around for a long time and knows what he's talking about, 
He says, Gog is the symbolic name of the nation's leader, and Magog is his land. He is also the prince of the ancient people who were called Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And then uh, here's a guy who everybody always laughs at his name, but he's a brilliant guy, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Uh, and uh, I think he calls his website Fruit from the Frucht. Uh, he's a completed Jew who's just a brilliant guy. He says, who Gog will be can only be determined at the time of the invasion, for Gog is not a proper name. It's a title for the ruler of Magog, just like the term Pharaoh or Kaiser or Tsar were titles for rulers and not proper names. And so we conclude that in this passage, at least, Gog is the title of a person who leads this last day's confederacy. There's virtually no information about Gog outside the Bible in history. However, when Gog leads his invasion of Israel, he is said to come, in verse 6, from the remote parts of the north. Then a list of other names occurs, and we expect them to be in the remote parts of the north. The first is Magog. Genesis 10:2 tells us that the sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshach and Tyrus. And so you recognize some of those names and that tells you that Ezekiel seems to be using the names of post-flood peoples telling us where they lived at the time of the giving of this prophecy. The hearers in the 6th century would have known who these people were and where they had settled after the flood of Noah. You realize, for us this is a little mysterious, especially if you are a product of the public school system of the 70s, like I am, uh, because I don't know anything. I, I used to say, I don't know nothing, uh, but then I was corrected by a teacher who's doing their job. Uh, and so I have very little knowledge of even recent American history. Uh, you know, and, and so I read these names and we think, wow, this is crazy. Who could ever know who these people are? In reality, scholars know who they are and the original hearers knew who these people were. They weren't thinking, oh, I, wonder, I wonder who Gog of the land of Magog is. Well, they knew because it was in the genealogies there in the table of nations. Uh, and, and they understood where these people had migrated to. Now, ancient historians like, um, and you correct me, is it Philo or Philo, the ancient historian? I know Philo makes dough uh, for, you know, Philo dough that you cook with. But, so maybe it's Philo. Philo and Herodotus named Magog, and they said he was, uh, they were the Scythians from southern Russia. And in the first century, Jewish historian Josephus said, and I quote, Magog founded the Magogians, makes sense, thus named after him, but the Greeks called them the Scythians. And so this is common. Everybody knew this at the time. And really, anybody who studies knows this, uh, that the uh, people of Magog are the Scythian people. The homeland of the ancient Scythians is inhabited today by the former Soviet republics of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzia, Uzbekistan, Turmic, uh, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and the Ukraine. And so these are the people from the regions that we would be expecting Gog to lead. Rosh is the proper name of a geographical area. In the 6th century BC, the time Ezekiel wrote this prophecy, several bands of the Rosh people lived in an area that was north of the Black Sea. 
Now, this part gets a little technical, at least to me. I can follow it, but it's important uh, foundation. The Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's all that that means. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. Translates Rosh as Ros, R-O-S. Now, this is significant since the Septuagint was translated only three centuries after Ezekiel was written, much closer to the original than any modern translation. The mistranslation of Rosh in many modern translations as uh, can be traced, they say, to the Latin Vulgate translation, which did not appear until uh, around 400 A.D. And so we believe that the proper uh, translation of this name would be Ras. In, in English, it comes to us as R-O-S, Ras. Now, the first Russian state was founded by a people known as the Varangian Rosh. And so Rosh is Rus, and thus we are definitely talking about modern Russia. So, so far, when we're talking about Gog and Magog and these people, we're talking about peoples that are what we would identify in the United States as Russia and parts of the old Soviet Union. Who are Meshach and Tubal? Well, sloppy prophecy buffs try to tell you that they are references to the Russian cities of Moscow and Tobolsk because they sound like Moscow and Tobolsk. You know, uh, but that's not true. That's based only on the English pronunciation. It's not based on research. It's like Jacob was talking about earlier. You kind of read your own culture into the passage. You say, oh, uh, Meshach and Tubal, uh, well, we would just call those Moscow and Tobolsk today. And, and uh, well, no, we wouldn't because that's not what's being referred to. Turns out there's not any mystery here either. Herodotus placed Meshach and Tubal as people dwelling on the north shore of the Black Sea. Again, Josephus identified them as the Cappadocians, saying Mesech must be located in the Moschian Mountains near Armenia. And so this area southeast of the Black Sea is modern-day Turkey. Meshach and Tubal, therefore, are areas that we would identify today as Turkey. Persia refers to the Persian people who make up a majority of the modern country of what? Iran. Because in 1935, the Iranian government requested those countries which it had diplomatic relations with to call Persia Iran, which is the name of the country in Persian. Uh, and so uh, we know Persia today, this great historic empire, as Iran. Some of your Bibles give the next nation as Ethiopia, but that turns out to be inaccurate. It's not a reference to what we would know as modern Ethiopia. Many English translations have transliterated it from the Hebrew into the English word Cush. One Hebrew lexicon says that Cush refers to the lands of the Nile in southern Egypt, meaning Nubia and northern Sudan and the country bordering the southern Red Sea. Another says that Cush refers to the region immediately south and east of Egypt, including modern Nubia, the Sudan, and the Ethiopia of classical writers. So the Bible locates Cush just south of Egypt in what we know as the modern nation of Sudan. <coughs> Libya is not in dispute among scholars. It refers to that area in North Africa that we still call Libya today, which leaves us with Gomer, and the house of Togarma. Josephus, again, he identified the people of Galatia with Gomer. 
He says, and I quote, the peoples the Greeks called the Galatians were Gomorites. Today, these Gomorites live in the west central part of Turkey. Mark Hitchcock writes, most Bible scholars and scholars of ancient history relate biblical Togarma to the ancient Hittite city of Tagarma, an important city in eastern Cappadocia, which is modern Turkey. And so Gomer and the house of Togarma are, a different, are additional references, rather, to what we understand today as Turkey. So here is who we've identified. Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzia, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and the Ukraine. Iran, Libya, the Sudan, Turkey, and then there's a part of the verse that says, and many others with them. But these are some of the key nations. These are the geographical regions and the people that Ezekiel saw 2,500 years ago who would be joining together against Israel in the last days when she was again dwelling in her ancient homeland. And so following our hermeneutics by that normal reading of these passages from 37 to 38, is, uh, Israel is going to be regathered to her land. They're going to be dwelling as a nation again in their land. And then at some point after that happens... There's going to be this confederacy of nations, and as we'll see as the chapter goes on, they're going to come down and invade to seek to destroy Israel. And so, we would look at this and say, number one, Israel is again dwelling in her ancient homeland, uh, which is an, an amazing and remarkable miracle. And number two, therefore, we might expect these nations to be gravitating towards one another, and in fact, that's exactly what's happening in our world today. I mean, you don't even have to try and make this up. I remember when I was first saved and the Soviet Union was big news. We used to have to try and figure out, because we weren't patient in waiting on the Lord, how the Soviet Union was going to fulfill all of these prophecies. Because from our point of view as Westerners, we thought, well, the Soviet Union, they're this massive world power that we're in this Cold War with. They're not going away anytime soon. And so maybe God meant this and, uh, you know, this and all. And then all of a sudden, almost overnight, there was no more Soviet Union. There were just these different independent republics that turned out to be Islamic. And, and then when you go back to this passage, you realize, oh, no, it means exactly what it said. It wasn't talking about the Soviet Union. You know what? God could have mentioned the Soviet Union if he had wanted to, knowing that it would exist one day. But he didn't. He mentioned all these various different regions uh, in an independent sense led by this one individual or this one nation. And so that's what we see happening. Russia and Iran are fast allies. Russia has been a supplier of many of the elements Iran needs in order to develop the nuclear bomb. Russia agreed in 1995 to build the Bushar nuclear plant in Iran on the site of a project begun in the 70s by Germans by the German company Siemens. Russia said on August 13 of this year it will begin loading nuclear fuel into the reactor by August 21st, an irre irreversible step marking the start-up of the Boucher plant after nearly 40 years of delay. I shouldn't have to tell you that Iran is a major player in the Middle East. It's clear that Iran aspires to control the entire Middle East so that they can spread their view of Islam in order to reunite the Muslim world under a single authority under Iranian rule. We've all heard their president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, say on multiple occasions 
that it's his desire to wipe Israel off the map. I don't think anybody for a minute doubts that he would nuke Israel uh, under the right circumstances, which would be, I have a nuke and they are Israel. Uh, And so that's what all this is about. Now, Sudan is the largest nation in territory on the African continent, has a population of 26 million. Iran and Sudan have become close allies during the last 20 years. They've entered into trade agreements, military alliances, and Iran also operates terrorist training bases in Sudan. Sudan is also the place, you'll remember, that protected Osama bin Laden from 91 to 96 until he went to Afghanistan. Ever since the rise of Colonel Muammar Gaddafi to power in 1969, the nation of Libya has been a constant source of trouble and terrorism for both the West and Israel. We silenced them for a little while when President Reagan bombed them uh, and uh, missed him. Uh, But, uh, you know, they, they kind of shaped up a little bit. But no one doubts that Libya is a terror uh, producing nation. What about Turkey? This has been fascinating just this past year because Turkey is a was a Western ally seeking to be admitted into the European Union. And as always, there always seems to be a problem with the interpretation of prophecy. There's always a, a nation that doesn't seem to fit. And then all of a sudden, spurned by the West, the last few years has seen an Islamic majority emerge in Turkey's parliament with an Islamic prime minister now in place. And Turkey's beginning to see itself as a leader in the Islamic world, turning its back on Europe and NATO. There are escalating tensions between Turkey and Israel. We did a prophecy update not long ago detailing the new hard line against Israel. Back in July, Turkey threatened to cut off all diplomatic ties with Israel over Israel's raid on what they called an international aid flotilla. The BBC article said this, Turkey, which until recently was Israel's most important Muslim ally, withdrew its ambassador, demanded that the Israelis issue an apology, agree to United Nations inquiry, and compensate the victims' families. And so these nations are aligning just as Ezekiel said they would. We are seeing it. It's happening literally right before our very eyes. It's happening on our watch, so to speak. We're not Israel, but we ought to receive this prophecy as an encouragement. It reminds us all that history is under God's control. God has a future and a hope for you and I just as much as He does for His elect nation. And that's why every time we get a chance, we encourage you to keep looking up because your redemption draws near. Amen? Amen. Next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll start to take on the uh, question of timing and see what we can glean about when this invasion... I'll tell you right now, it hasn't happened yet. Uh, There is a group, for their own crazy theological reasons, who believes that it was fulfilled during the time of the book of Esther, uh, when the Jews had to fight against the Persians uh, back then. Uh, I don't... I don't think really it makes any logical sense, but it's just interesting to note uh, that people are uh, unsure about the exact timing of this event. We're sure about the players. Israel will be in her land, dwelling safely, and uh, then we'll go from there.